0: And so I was watching this unit, and because it was a, a, a muzzleloader hunt, quote, traditional muzzleloader hunt, you know, open sites required, it was not experiencing near the point creep everything else was, and which was good news. I noticed it was getting about a half a point of point creep per year, which you can catch a unit if it's a half a point. The RockCast is powered by OnX Hunt, and for good reason. OnX Hunt is the number one hunting GPS app in the industry. Stay tuned for a RockCast promo code. Good morning, RockSlide world, Robbie Denning here. Okay, today's episode is gonna cover a variety of topics here. Hunting season's over, and for most of us, there's a few guys out there still rolling, and uh, just kinda doing some wrap-ups here on things that are going on on RockSlide, different state wildlife agencies voting on laws, Point creep, uh, getting the best tasting venison and elk, you know things like that. Uh, a few hot rockside threads, uh, photo contests, all that good stuff. So let's start at the top. Uh, the Utah Wildlife Board did vote for no magnifying scopes allowed in Utah. If you jump back a couple episodes that I did with uh, Dustin Whitwer of the Finding Backcountry podcast, we talked about that. And it looks like they went ahead and voted uh, to go back to the pre-2016 rule of one power or less uh, scopes on their muzzleloaders. And uh, even though some of the evidence was that they weren't killing that many more deer, it's just like it always is with statistics. It just depends on how, how you look at it. I think they came up with the, the scopes were accounting for 3%, 4% more harvest, which was 400 deer across the state. Um, I didn't think that was a lot. But other people did, and you know, 400 deer a year times year after year. Okay, I guess you could make the case for it. But no matter, uh, they did vote to go back to those old rules. And I'll tell you uh, why. What I think it's going to do, even if it doesn't change harvest a lot, uh, I think it's going to do two things: is muzzleloaders. We still affectionately call them primitive weapons, but if you look at our muzzleloaders compared to the muzzleloaders that were around when they came up with muzzleloader seasons, you know, in the modern game era, you know, they were, at best, side locks. I remember my dad's old Hawkin that he that he bought in a kit, and you know, he put it together, and you know, I mean you were deadly to 50 yards. And if you were really good, you were deadly to 75. Um, and then, you know, with technology affecting everything, muzzleloaders got a lot better. It's been my experience that the the, the best way to extend your muzzleloader distance is, number one, you got to be accurate. But even if you're just shooting shorter yardages, I think you need to be accurate. But uh the, the sighting system that makes the biggest difference if as long as we're limiting people to in Utah's case 1 power scopes if you've ever looked through a 1 power scope uh, the ones I've looked through are like looking through a toilet paper tube so they're not that effective but you know moving into uh, peeps and open sights uh, which are all allowed under this rule uh that's what limits your distance right there so i think all the other stuff that goes back and forth you know loose powder versus pellets and you know conicals versus sabots and all of that the biggest limiter is the sighting system and so that's my guess why Utah went after it so these will be back to 100 yards guns maybe 200 in a very skilled person's hands and uh, the, the the thing I think it's going to do though and I, and I have a story to go along with it uh, is it's going to help with point creep and I could be wrong Because my story, this goes back to 2000, mid 2015, back to 2010, and um, I'm I'm a high point holder in Utah. I've been applying for points down there since the early 90s. I think I've got like 24 right now, which sounds like a lot, but in this day and age, it's not. And back in like 2010 when I had like 11 or 12 points and I was ready to spend them I was looking at Utah's uh, muzzleloader hunts which were open-sided hunts then and you know, I was like everybody, And you want to hunt the Ponce Gaunt, you want to hunt the Henrys. And, you know, once once I really took a look at the math, I thought, I'm not hunting those. Um, just forget about them. And so I started looking at some of the other ones that Utah had offered. And, you know, we don't get into units and stuff like that on, on the Rockcast here. But um, I found one that I wanted, that I thought was going to fit my schedule. And uh, gave a, you know, a long enough season that if I got goofed up with, you know, having to work or something, I, I you know, I still had plenty of season left. Um And started to really pay attention to it. I didn't didn't start applying for it yet. I had more points than what was necessary. I think it was like eight or nine, you know. And I was like ten, you know. So whenever you get in that situation, you're always careful about spending your points. And so I was just kind of studying the unit, getting to know people that lived around there. You know, started with the you know biologist, all that stuff. But you know, local knowledge is all the best. I I visited the unit in the off season in the winter. and got an idea of what class of bucks were there and you know always a potential for a great buck but you know if you got a 180 buck on this hunt you were doing really well way better than average and so looking at my point level and looking at what other opportunities were out there i thought well that's what i that's what i need to do so uh and this is when point creep has really taken off in the western states and you know you get really excited like hey man i got 10 points now and this this hunt took 10 points last year i'm gonna get it and then you put in for it and you miss it and you look at the odds and it jumped to 11 points or 13 that's when when we all kind of realize hey the gig's kind of up on points uh and so i was watching this unit and because it was a a, a muzzleloader hunt, quote, traditional muzzleloader hunt, you know, open sites required. It was not experiencing near the point creep. Everything else was, and which was good news. I noticed it was getting about a half a point of point creep per year, which you can catch a unit if it's a half a point because you gain a point a year. Where uh, with a lot of units, if, if, as soon as they're 1.1 points per year, you can't catch them because they, they, they gain they gain more points every year than you can accumulate. Uh, but this one wasn't. And so I literally spent like three or four or five years just watching this unit, getting to know it. And so by the time I went to apply for it, point creep had come up. I can't remember. It was like 13 points or something like that, 12. And, and I was well ahead of it by then. I think I was up to 15 by then. And uh, so I went ahead and applied for it, and I drew it. Now, the, the other thing about the hunt that I had learned is it was a migration hunt, and heavily dependent on the migration, and you could really get, get hosed. And the way the Utah rules read then was you could turn your tag back up to the day before the season for any reason and so that was part of my strategy and uh, you know I'm not going to get into it with guys on hey that takes the tag away from somebody else well that back then you know we weren't thinking that way it was uh, now a lot of that's been addressed I think Utah is like you gotta have 30 days notice which I'm all for that stuff I get it but you know I'm always going to take advantage of whatever the law allows me to do so I started scouting that hunt about three days um, before it opened and there was not a migration at all and it was a very you know pretty mild fall if you go back 2016 and you know look at the weather patterns it was extremely mild and uh so i scouted it right up to when the post office closed uh, the night before the season and i rushed to town i already had all the paperwork filled out dropped it in the mailbox got my tag got my um Points back, and I, and I don't know what happened to the tag then. Utah, you know, I hope they gave it to somebody. Um, now they would, because they allow enough time. But I don't know what happened. But, you know, not, not my issue. I followed the law. So, um, and, and by the way, that was, I might have said 2015, that was 2016. That was when they allowed any power muzzleloader. That was another deciding reason why I applied, because I could use any, any scope on my muzzleloader. And so anyways, I got my points back and I thought I'm just gonna have to keep playing this game. It, it stinks, but it's just what you gotta do. You know, if there's, you know, not gonna waste 15 years of preference points on a hunt that doesn't have any deer in it. And uh, so the next year, um, I applied again and I did not draw. And I was like, what the heck? And got looking, and because of the, and I can only attribute it to the scope law, the points really started to jump. A lot of guys got in the game then, uh, just like me, because they were like, wow, now I can hunt with a scope. Basically a muzzleloader with a scope, any good muzzleloader with a scope is, you know, a great single shot rifle. Now you're not just limited to 200, you're kind of starting at 200. You can, I think, think that year I had my my night muzzleloader with a with a vortex um, scope that had hash marks in it I think I was I was pretty confident out to about 400 had the energy there that I needed all that stuff and some guys are even braver than that and they're they're going they're going way past that but anyways long story short that hunt just continued to climb and climb and climb and it was I think last I looked it was it may have may have surpassed the 20 mark i can't remember but it it definitely got on the point creep bandwagon and so if there's any good thing about this law i'm i'm hoping that it will address point creep because if it, the easier we make it, the better we make it. Obviously, the more people that are going to participate. I could be totally wrong. Things change so fast now, and there's a lot more guys on the sidelines with points than there was in even 2016. So maybe it won't make a difference. But that's what I'm I'm looking forward to is is maybe we can slow down point creep for some of these muzzleloader only seasons. We'll see. Okay, um, and you know this this whole thing about restricting muzzleloaders just comes on the heels of of other restrictions that have been put out there the last couple of years because tech continues to be a hot topic as it should be because technology is changing quickly and i I really you know my opinion my humble opinion is it can get way ahead of where the laws are if we're not keeping an eye on it so the over the last three or four or five years, Nevada, Arizona, Utah, all big trail camera states because they're arid states, at least parts of them are, where trail cameras are very effective uh, on water and, and things like that. And so they put in restrictions for those as well. I don't really hear anybody complaining about it now, and you know I watch some of these outfitters that are in these units; they seem to be doing just fine. And um, and again, you know, maybe it didn't even make that big of a difference, but it's it's the law. And um, I won't go into each state's law, but you basically have to have them out of the field by a certain date. Um, I, and uh, the, so I think we're going to continue to have these text discussions as we should, and uh, hopefully, in we can preserve opportunity and maybe even grow more deer. Uh, we'll see. Uh, let's see. With the season wrapping up, um, I could have done this next part of the episode you know, earlier in the fall, but just was busy and didn't think about it. But uh, getting the best venison and elk meat. Um, I was like a lot of people for many years. Uh, I would age my game just between when I shot it and when I had time to cut it up. And I tried to always wait about a week. You know, I thought that was pretty good. But then, uh, if any of you have, you know, followed my it's my second book, Hunting Big Mule Deer, The Stories, you'll see I had a chapter in there from Je- uh, Chef John McGannon. He writes uh, in the Mule Deer Foundation publication, maybe the... Maybe the Elk Foundation, too. I can't remember. But anyways, I attended one of his seminars at the Western Hunt Expo back in 2008, and this dude was age and game, like 14 to 28 days. And uh, so, I just so happened that year to have shot a buck in the early part of November, and... I didn't have time to deal with it. I can't remember what was going on. And I, I quartered him up because uh, I'd shot him in the backcountry. And when I got home, I froze him in a deep freeze. And um, so when I went to the seminar, uh, the good chef was talking about, you know, the ideal way to age game is a uh, whole body. You You have less shrinkage that way. We'll talk about that in a minute. But You know, I told him, well, what happens when you've already got them quartered? Because, you know, you can't do whole body animals if you're hunting the backcountry. And he says, you can still do it. He says, but because they're quartered and there's a lot more surface area exposed to drying, your shrinkage is more. But he's, you know, I still remember him saying, I'd rather have 75 pounds of of great meat I could feed to anybody than, you know, a hundred pounds of stuff that, I'm the only one that wants to eat and I'm eating it out of obligation, you know, and, that, and and you know, it's just not as good. You know, he said something like that. So he said, give it a try. So I went home and followed his method for aging. And, he, and it's specifically called dry aging, the way he does it. There's different ways to age it. And just the method he does is dry aging. And the whole term dry means that you're you're letting the meat hang between 33 and 40 degrees. And it goes through a drying process. It dries out. Actually, dries out the blood in the meat, which, according to the good chef, is where the strong flavor comes from in all wild game, um, even birds. uh, You know, he had a whole part of his seminar on aging. Uh, waterfowl and, uh, you know, mallards, you know, some of the gamiest meat that's out there. But, you know, he had this stuff out laying on a table, and it looked like pork. I mean, it was so light. And it's because it had gone through the drying process, removed the blood. Uh, Wild game animals of all types, you know, he calls them super athletes. You know, he says they've got, you know, very high endurance. You know, think about a, you know, a goose flies across the continent. A mule deer migrates 150 miles, you know, all, all the things that they go through. He says they're totally different than beef, which is, you know, typically not traveling big distance some of them live in very small areas their whole lives you know it's 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 just completely different and and he says that the strong flavors coming from the blood so the more blood you get out of it the better and and he says we're not talking about you know hanging them upside down slit in the throat and, and draining the blood out. We're talking about the intramuscular blood, the blood that doesn't drain easily. He says that has to go through the drying process. So I um, I went home uh, right after the seminar. Uh, my buddy had an old refrigerator. Uh, this was one of the methods that you could do that he was getting rid of. So I went and grabbed it. I put it in my garage. Um, I, I set it so it was in that 33 to 40 degree range and took all the racks out of it and You know, basically ruin the refrigerator, you know, putting hooks and things like that in it just to make it so that I could get four quarters of a deer in there and went through this drying process. And I think I went to like day 25 or something. And, um, you know, this podcast is just meant to kind of scratch the surface of this you really need to follow uh the chef he's a, i think his uh, website's called uh, wild eats uh so don't don't go do it from just what i said in this episode because you can make mistakes and ruin your meat but anyways i i did all the adjustments for for doing it within a closed refrigerator the problem with a closed refrigerator is it doesn't have any uh, airflow, so um humidity can be a problem and so i dealt with all that and uh, cut that deer up. I remember uh, it was totally different the, the the strong flavor and venison is typically known to be stronger flavor than elk was almost gone. It was a milder flavor and and much more tender um it it definitely made a difference there was a lot of shrinkage especially the way I did it because I was I had the four quarters so there was a lot exposed to the air and you know I remember having a pretty good size bucket of of trim that um I I just saved for the dog and but everything else was was really good and that's when dry aging you end up drying out the the outside kind of eighth inch of, of the meat, so that has to all be trimmed off, and so that's you know, that's more work for you, more shrinkage, and it's why a lot of butchers don't do it the do wild game because number one, it takes more of their time for freezer space or for cooler space, excuse me, and uh, they more effort to get the trim off. All right, um, so it's just not something that a, a, the average butcher is going to do for you. Although I have found a couple where I, you know, kind of greased the palm a little bit, and uh, they took care of me and 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 went ahead and aged it, but but it did cost me more. So that was in 2008. What was that? 15, 16 years ago. I've done you know, dozens of deer since then and I won't go back. Um, I I always do about 20 to 28 days somewhere in there. I quit using the refrigerator. I figured out a little system in my garage. I live in Idaho, southeast Idaho, so it's cold. You know, you get in December, it's cold, uh, even November, Um, and I've I've aged them in my garage before um, just by keeping them, uh, the quarters frozen, and then um, once we get into, uh, you know, mid-November on, it's cold enough in my garage to maintain that 33 to 40 degrees. Now I have to get creative with you know fans in the window some nights and you know closing the garage down during the day I have an old sleeping bag out there if the the garage is going to get you know above that temperature I wrap the deer in a sleeping bag that day Uh, you have to monitor the temperature every day and so that this is not for everybody okay I I get this I'm probably already got people saying oh man I wouldn't want to have to go to that much work I get it but if you want to have the best meat it's worth it you have to have um, an in-meat thermometer that stays uh, in the meat you put it in the deepest part thickest part of one of the rear quarters and then you just monitor that to make sure that you stay in that 33 to 40 degrees I even had frozen uh, one gallon ice jugs um, in my freezer so for the really warm days um Nights were hardly ever a problem. Hardly ever. I put a fan in the window. You know, it's it was nine degrees this morning here. I mean, that's not uncommon in in uh, in Idaho and in in after mid November. But you know, some of the days were pretty warm, six or so. I would just take a couple of those frozen jugs and hang them from the game pole before I'd wrap the sleeping bag around it and. A lot of trouble but i never spoiled one deer and like i said i've been able to go 21 to 28 days um it it it, it it's amazing to watch how much the meat visibly shrinks as it loses that that, that dread blood that blood dries out and, and plus the other moisture that's in it it all dries out it's, it's amazing how much it shrinks I mean I can only guess but you know 20% it's it's just amazing so anyways I, I would encourage you to learn more about it don't go do it just by listening to this episode because I left a lot of uh, little things out of there uh, but if you want to join in on rockslide um, if you uh, we I, I created a thread back in 2019 in our meet and trophy care sub forum so if you go to rockslide.com go down uh, find our forum um uh, go down about three-fourths on the page you'll see a a meat and trophy care sub forum and that thread i started um we 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 sticky it that means we we pin it to the top of the subform. So when you open that form, it's at the top. I think it's called the the deer aging thread, which is probably kind of a not a good title because it makes it sound like you're aging how old they are. Probably should have been, you know, the dry aging venison thread or something. But anyways, it's still there. And it's not just me. I mean, I started the thread. I took a buck all the way through the process uh, on that thread. And I, th- I think I have, you know, tons of photographs in there from, you know, day one to the day I cut it up. And, the great thing about Rockslide is when we start these threads, then other people can get on there and share their experiences. And um, so it I think when I looked the other day, it had over 15,000 views on it, you know, dozens of pages of information presented by other members, um, some of them for the method, some of them not for it. But that's the great thing about Rockslide is you can, you can hear everybody's opinion and kind of form your own. So if you're interested in having better venison and better elk i promise you that dry aging will provide that if you do it correctly and you can jump on there and look at that and also uh you know chef mcgannon um you know he's not a sponsor an advertiser or anything we're just sort of friends he doesn't even know i'm doing this you know just go check out his website wildeats.com there's a whole whole world of, of of dry aging out there that i think everybody would be smart to learn. Okay, uh, moving on to a couple of Rock Slide reviews. Uh, one Rock Slide review, the one I did. Um... The Rockcast is powered by the number one GPS hunting app in the industry, Onyx Hunt. The Onyx Hunt Elite subscription will provide way more value than the $100 annual fee will cost you, and that's before you apply the 20% Rockcast promo code. You'll use Onyx on every hunt every planning session and now save money with exclusive deals on gear from the industry's best. Onex Elite also includes application and draw odds tools, educational resources for all species, exclusive mapping and scouting tools, and last but not least, access to nationwide coverage and now Canada. Onex Hunt Elite is trusted by millions. Onex has also released new features to help make hunters more successful. Already known for nationwide public and private land ownership and being a fully functional GPS without service, Onex Hunt has just released new aerial imagery options like Leaf Off, recent imagery updated every two weeks with historic lookback and imagery on demand. On top of that, Onex is reinventing the trail camera market by syncing your Hunt app with multiple cell camera manufacturers and helping organize and analyze your photos. You can also now view your maps in dash when driving to your next hunting location. These are just a few of the many updates Onyx has for this hunting season. So try Onyx Hunt for free for seven days or go to onyxmaps.com and use promo code ROCKCAST for 20% off your new Onyx Hunt map You'll probably notice on our Tipsy Tuesday, Sam is doing a great job. He always gives recaps on some of our hot reviews that are out there. So if you're not a Tipsy Tuesday follower, just make sure you you listen in every other Tuesday. Sam, Sam will wrap up some of these uh, reviews that are on Rockslide, and uh, you know and then you can decide if you want to take time to jump on there and read them. Or in the case of like Zach Harold, uh, one of our uh, writers, he. He does all his reviews on video. Sam will point you to, to all those. But uh, the one I'm doing today was the tent that I mentioned uh, in the episode that Travis Hobbs and I did. Uh, it was the tent we stayed in on our buck hunt um, uh, early November. And it's the Sapphire 15 Man Tent. It's officially called the Sapphire Flex 15. And uh, we stayed in that. I stayed in it for 10 days, uh, 9 nights. And a great tent. I got the final uh, review up. And um, it is a video review view uh, partly written partly video it is on our home page now our home page is rockslide.com and uh, if you just scroll around on there you see a big picture a picture of a great big TP tent uh, that is up now um, you can go watch the video I think it's a seven minute video it goes from you know set up uh, to staying in it through the week and uh, down to the last day so if you're interested in a really good tent that will uh, basically, it, it'll, it'll cost you as much as a, a pretty good used truck, but it's a, it's a good 10. It'll last you a lifetime. Um, and, and you don't have to go all the way with the 15 man. They make nine mans and seven mans and uh, five man and all the way down. Mansfield Outdoors is the, uh, these are your Euro- European tents by the way, uh, Mansfield Outdoors is the uh, US uh, supplier, the US distributor, that's Tom Mansfield, he's an advertiser on Rockslide, um, you can you can check out everything he has to offer too, but go check out that review if you're looking for a good solid tent that's really easy to set up for the size that it is, that's, that's the high point of the tent. One guy can set this tent up in 10 or 15 minutes by himself and have a 15-man tent. Uh, let's see. Other threads. Uh, Sam has mentioned it, too, but the deadline's getting so close. I want to remind everybody, again, we've got photo contests that will be closing. Most of them close on December 10th. Off the top of my head, I think the mule deer closes December 10th, the elk closes December 10th, and the sheep closes December 10th. Um, so if you've got good photos, okay, good photos, not just your crappy field photo with your cell phone camera that you didn't um, hold vertical or horizontal maybe halfway and your thumbs in the picture. Not those pictures. I have a bunch of those too. That's for our meat pole threads that are in, 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 in those respective forums. Um, you put anything in there you want. Just about anything. Uh, but the photo contest threads are for your good high quality photos and, um, it, and it's fun when these get all done. Because you get to go through a lot of high-quality photos, and you know we've got it going back. I think this is like the eighth year that we've done them. But if you go to those sub forums, read the rules. You can only post a deer that you shot. Okay, you can't post for someone else. That keeps the contest. Uh, manageable, because if we allowed other people to post other people's animals, then the group hunters, the outfitters, they would all have a big advantage. And then plus, when we award the prizes, because there's some great prizes, like the mule deer, uh, one is uh, sponsored by Cryptic. They got a $500 gift card in there for uh, for the Cryptic store. Um, if if somebody posts a picture for someone else, and they didn't have permission, guess who gets caught in the middle of trying to straighten it all out? Yeah, yours truly, are the Rockslide editor so we it has to be your deer and then that makes it you know for a kind of better odds of winning you know Um, and so uh, jump into those sub forums elk mule deer sheep and uh, get your best photo in there read the rules it's only one photo per person Um, you know don't don't hammer us with the shotgun approach you know here's nine photos please best the best best one no we want you to post the best one and um and even if you're not going to enter go jump in those now and look man some fantastic animals in there they're not biggest animal threads but a lot of times some of the best photos are the biggest animals but in the mule thread specifically go look at that one that they posted about a week ago and it had the northern lights um behind the silhouette of a guy packing out of mule deer. It is the coolest photo. Um, The the way the voting works on this, by the way, is um, the staff, the rock staff, all of us, We'll narrow it down to 10 finalists, all right? But then the members get to pick the winners, all right? And in every category, I think there's at least one winner. Uh, I think in the elk category, Kafaru, very generous. I, 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 I should have looked before I got on here. But, you know, big gift card. I think they have a teepee there. They're giving away to second place. I mean, there's good stuff in there. But all the Rockside members get to pick the, uh, the winners. And so once we close it on December 10th, me and the crew will go through and get those finalists ready, and then everybody can start voting on them. It usually takes us a couple weeks. Uh, Travis Bertrand, uh, Sam Weaver, uh, a bunch of other guys get in there and help me with that. I appreciate that, you guys, because it's a big job. But it's a lot of fun. There's two other contests that aren't closing yet. The Whitetail Contest, and um, that runs into January, just because there's so many late whitetail seasons. And uh, the Youth Contest, uh, that's ran by Western Edge Gear. Uh, the Whitetail Contest is sponsored by First Light, by the way. Um, and Western Edge Gear does the youth contest. That one's got a later date, too. I think it might be December 31st, somewhere in there. Um, that The youth contest, by the way, the youth does not have to post. Um, a parent or guardian or friend can post on their behalf because we didn't want to, you know, require, you know, 12-year-olds to have to register on Rockslide. So that's the only one you can post for someone else. Uh, that's not a um, species-specific one. That's, any, anything youth, any great pictures of youth. So you got kids on there with turkeys and bears and deer, and I mean it, it's pretty cool. Uh, Western Edge Gear, uh, they make backpacks for kids. They're the they're the sponsor of that one. That's what they win. Um, the sheep contest, that's uh, sponsored by who else? Stone Glacier, you know, ultralight, high quality sheep gear, uh, Western gear. So they, they sponsor that one. Very generous. Uh, I mean sleeping bags, tents. They're giving away all kind of stuff in there. So let's see. I think I got it covered. Elk is Kafaru. Uh, Mule deer is cryptic, uh, white tail is first light, youth is western edge gear, and then sheep is stone glacier. So everybody check that out. December 10th is when you got to have uh, the, the photos in for those three. Get them in there. Let's see. Um... A really cool thread popped up on Rockslide the last couple of days, and uh, Sam had mentioned this in his Tipsy Tuesday podcast that came out last week. In that episode, and he was talking with uh, Stephen Follett of LS Wild, formerly Thunder, Thunderbird Long Range, uh, their Rockslide advertiser, and they were just talking about the shift in um, from big, heavy calibers, um, you know, the ultra mags. You know the 375s, the 338s, you know all all that stuff. Um, to smaller and smaller calibers now, and you know, and, and I've seen this on Rockslide, but I haven't paid a lot of attention to it. And um, one of the biggest threads on Rockslide is is titled "223 <laughs> for Elk, Deer and Bear," it was started by uh, one of our members, uh, uh, PNW Gator, I, th- I think is his name, and uh, uh, and just about how successful guys have been with these small calibers uh and and it's mind bending i I realize it's it's like wait wait a minute wait a minute i thought it was all magnums and lots of powder and uh, 3100 feet a second with a 215 grain burger yep but that's why this is interesting to watch this change and so um if you wanna, if you wanna check it out, there's kind of a summary thread. It was started by one of our members, uh, MT Wyatt. I think that means Montana Wyatt, and it's titled "What caused the rock Slide shift to smallest caliber and cartridges?" and and uh, he just started the thread uh, just a couple of days ago, and it's it's super interesting to to look at the responses of why people are going to smaller and smaller calibers now, and. Um, Kind of, kind of, uh, some of the some of the leading things they're mentioning why you know compared to like you know 20 years ago when all the other big calibers were you know I remember when the 300 Winch 300 Winchester Short Mag came out I mean that was like a big deal you know big caliber you know heavy bullets and you know short short action all that stuff and then all the the Ultra mags that came out, you know, and, and, and I just remember all that. And now it's like that's kind of dying a little bit. And, uh, so, and so people are posting on there why they changed to these smaller calibers. And, guys, we're talking all the way down to stuff like, you know, uh, well, I mentioned the two twenty three, you know, 250s, um, 6 6mms. Uh, Ryan Avery, um, co-host on the podcast here, my buddy. Um, I can't remember how many. But I know he killed at least one really good bull this year with a 6-millimeter, with a what they call the the UM, that stands for unknown munitions. And I don't know a whole lot more about it other than it's a small caliber. And, you know, I, I mean, and then this is Ryan Avery. This is the guy that when I met him, he had a 14-pound rifle, dude, and he was shooting 300-grain bullets. Um, and, and now he's all the way at the other end of the spectrum, and it, it's just neat to follow that. So uh, some of the reasons people are mentioning that uh, for these changes are range finders that's that changed the game if there's been a game changer in my life in hunting it's been range finders because back in the day that was where i was shooting a seven mag years ago was you had to have a flat shooting caliber because none of us could judge yardage very well so once you got beyond you know 200 embarrassingly so even though you know people would say longer now. I have tested it, man. You get out beyond 200 in the mountains with up and down stuff. It's it gets hard to judge. Well, the only way you could offset that margin of error was with a flatter shooting caliber. And so, you know, that's where the 3378 Weatherby and, you know, 7mm Remington mag. And then the, and then the big ones, you know, like 7mm STW. And, oh, I can't even remember the other ones that were. They were all um all the Lazaroni calibers. The the Weatherby, the the big Weatherby stuff, you know, is what put Weatherby on the map, you know, was you know the 270 weatherby magnum you know that's one of the flattest shooting calibers that were out there and range finders took away the need for that and that's you know, one reason the 6.5 Creedmoor, even though we all make fun of it on Rockside, it's actually a very good caliber. We're making more fun of the fanboys than we are the caliber, uh, the cartridge. Uh, that's one reason it's been so effective because a you know, rangefinder can make up, and and it's a flash shooting caliber for what it is. But a rangefinder can make up for the difference on it. So that was a, a big mention in there. Um, better bullets that that made the the the, the, top, the head of the list of. Guys are saying, "Hey, we got better bullet construction now, so I don't have to have a big, heavy bullet to make sure I, that it can perform." You know, they you know 108 grain bullets, the the, the the 223 thread that everybody's blowing up, 77 grain bullets, and they're shooting elk with them, effectively. And you know, you I, you might be pounding on the dash right now saying, "I would never go do that." Well, go look at that thread thousands uh, hundreds anyways maybe thousands of photos on there of wound channels you know all the all the reasons that guys have switched over to these smaller more manageable uh, calibers but a lot of that was better bullet construction better education obviously you know it's it, it, information traveled slow 40 years ago so you know when i was a kid we were still listening to the the world war 2 vets that were you know 30 out six or bust and 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 that was fine for what we knew then that's that's what we did and it worked but you know education now t- changes uh, quickly gets passed around quickly and verified or, or debunked and and there's just a lot of people that are participating in this process now they're like man no smaller we're doing fine with smaller smaller is better a couple of the other th- reasons they mentioned was less brass less powder less lead uh, that's all. Th- I mean, that's huge. That saves you money. They're cheaper to shoot. than, gosh, goodness gracious, some of these big magnums. I think my friends are saying they're four bucks a load or four bucks a shot or something. I can't even remember. But I mean, I, it's just. the the cheaper, the less components, the cheaper it is, and so that's the other reason that these smaller calibers are getting so much traction now, and uh, and then the uh, the last one was recoil, uh, recoil management, we don't all like brakes, you've you've heard me talk about that before, and I've never gone with a suppressor yet, Um, may do someday, but you know, I, I, I kind of been around the last 20 years when brakes really took off, and I just, as an outfitter, I didn't like them, I didn't like I always had to have my earplugs in when somebody was shooting I had to remember you know I had to get out of the way you know all that other stuff when and um I just I just grew not to like them and that's why I I have a muzzle brake for my 270 short mag uh Christensen Arms Summit Tie and they send you a muzzle brake that'll go with it and I just never use it I've just gone with 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 the rifle itself and so on this thought pattern, that was one reason I went with a smaller rifle back in 2015. I was a 7mm Remington Mag fan for years. Still am. It's a great caliber. I would never talk it down. I shot most of my big bucks with a 7mm Remington Magnum. And back when all the guns were 10, 11 pounds, the recoil, you you didn't need a break. You You weren't too worried about it. But with the whole growth in, in lighter weight guns, which I totally embraced, you know, even before Rockside started, you know, I was doing everything I could to save weight on my gun. I remember my old Seiko A5 was like 10 and a half pounds scoped. And I, you know, I bought one of those aftermarket stocks and got it down to nine and a half pounds. And man, I thought I was sticking a fat hog, you know, and it made all the difference. And then, then I changed to a, a Weatherby, uh, a uh, super big game master, I think is what they called them. Then it was their ultralight magnums, got down to eight pounds, and and but that's when I noticed that the man the 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 punishment of shooting a gun at eight pounds, and on and, and this other thing too. We all we all learned that that heavy for caliber bigger bullets were. Were, were better performers ballistically high high bcs and you know they weren't offered you didn't have a high bc in these smaller calibers and so when they talk about better bullets now that's one thing they're talking about you can get a higher bc in a smaller caliber than you could 20 years ago or 20 years ago you had to go with a you know I, I, my 7 mag i, I ended up with that 168 burger um and And it shot so well. And I always shot 150s, 150 grainers. But the accuracy was so much better. The precision was so much better with that bigger bullet. So then I went up in bullet weight. Um, and then I went down and gun, and it was not fun to shoot. It just was not. You know, cutting my forehead, all those things that happen. And so that's why in 2015 I got on this bandwagon a little bit. I mean, not going from great big to really small, but I, I, that's why I switched over the 270 Winchester Short Mag, because immediately I could drop down to 130 grain bullet, um, you know, and um, stay with a light rifle, and, you know, it doesn't have the energy that the bigger bullet has obviously but for the moderate ranges that i shoot because i'm not a long range shooter uh, i just shoot hash marks and try to keep everything you know four or five hundred and in and and i've never killed a buck past four sixty i think um and uh so that was a good change for me i was able to go to manage my recoil I, i wrote a big article on it back in Mid 2015, it's probably still out there. Saying goodbye 7 mag, hello Winchester 270 short. Uh, Got hated on for it, but it was all it was all fun, and um, and and I've never gone back. And I've I've shot six bucks with that 270 short unless I'm not remembering one. I have no wounding loss. I've killed two elk with it. I've been very happy with it. And um, and less recoil. That's a lot of it. I don't have to shoot a break. I don't have to worry about air plugs. I don't have to worry about any of that stuff. Um, I'm a simple guy. And so, so I embraced it then, although now Ryan is wanting me to go down to the 6UM which is like, what? So who knows? I guess that's the fun thing about these gun discussions is I, I've kind of learned to never say never. And uh, so uh, you never know. Maybe, maybe I will. Maybe I'll jump ship and go to even smaller caliber. But I wanted to bring that up today because you know that's kind of the cool thing about working on a forum and everything. You get access to some of the latest and greatest information. Sometimes you got to bleed through a bunch of bull crap. But uh, but it definitely is being embraced by some of the best shooters on Rock Slide that, hey, smaller... Uh, I don't know if I want to say it better, but that's what they're saying. But smaller is is good. It's a good thing. So go check it out, okay? That is in our firearms fo- forum. Uh, what caused the rock slide shift to smallest caliber and cartridges? Uh, thanks, uh, Montana Wyatt, for bringing that discussion up. It's a good one. Uh, let's see. So that's everything I got for today here, but let's jump into a chapter of hunting Big Mule Deer, my first book, How to Take the Best Buck of Your Life. Uh, we've been in the kind of the main section about gear, and, uh, in, in the, in, and I consider a horse part of your gear. And so I got a whole section in here about horses. I'm going to go ahead and read that today. Horses. I've taken at least half my big bucks in the back country of Idaho, Wyoming, and Colorado, where a horse is required to get in get my buck, and then get him and my gear back out. I've also hunted hundreds of days in the backcountry in extreme weather conditions where hunting would have been near impossible if I didn't have horses to bring the proper camp gear. Finding good bucks in OTC areas often means I have to cover a lot of country, and a horse is almost essential to do that effectively. I also hunt alone frequently, and having a horse to talk to is certainly better than nothing at all. You might chuckle at that one, but go spend nine days alone ten miles from the nearest road. and I'll bet you'll agree that a horse offers companionship that can keep your mood up, just like a dog does for most people. I was lucky to have grown up in a horse family. My grandpa was a sheep herder and rode horses hundreds of miles per year. He passed all that horse sense on to my dad, who taught me how to use horses in the backcountry. I've also been blessed to meet a few real cowboys who've deepened my knowledge of horses and packing. If you have access to horses, I believe they can improve your success rate, especially if you're not in great shape and able to backpack, which brings up another point. Fellow mule deer hunter, David Long, doesn't even own a horse, yet he is one of the top DIY mule deer hunters around. His primary method of pursuit is by backpack. I'd never argue against his method as it has proven very successful, especially in the early fall. I'm often asked if it's better to backpack for big bucks or use horses, both is my answer. A skilled backpack hunter has the advantage of being able to stay close to the bucks and keep a very quiet, inconspicuous camp, whereas a horse hunter can't really do that. If you know where the bucks are and you don't have to travel far for water, then backpack hunting is the way to go. Also there are a few places where a backpack hunter can go but a horse cannot. However, once the buck is down, this is where the men separate from the boys. Unless you just went in for the night, you're going to have 50 pounds of gear and around 100 pounds of buck to get back to the truck. So you're going to have two trips, really three if you count the original trip in, to be legal. Many tickets are written to hunters who didn't bring out enough meat to qualify as legal kill and avoid waste of game citations. Many hunters completely underestimate this task. If it's only a few miles, most of us can handle that. But once you start getting two to five miles or more back in, only a few men can handle the work required. For me, that is where a horse is imperative. In many places in the West, about the time you start thinking, how will I get a buck out of this place, you're probably starting to get into the good hunting areas. A horse allows you to hunt without that limitation. For me, I'll leave the horses home if logistically the area doesn't require a horse. Like if I'm hunting a pre-rut buck, rutting bucks can move miles a day. Or in an area three or, few miles, three or fewer miles in, and where I don't need to travel more than about a mile from camp, to hunt, or more than 500 feet to get water. Horses require much time and care during the hunt to keep them watered, fed, and rested, and if this time is better spent hunting a particular area, then I'll leave the horses home. However, once I get into October, where snow is almost given in the high country, I rarely leave the horses home. I need a good camp with a wood-burning stove to stay motivated enough to hunt effectively. Also, in some places and on some hunts, I need to hunt several areas that are miles apart to look at enough bucks to find a big one, so horse is essential. Horses have also added to the enjoyment of my hunting career to a degree that I cannot explain. There is just something right about hunting in the mountains from horseback. I do want to be clear that I've never killed a big buck while on a horse. Horses are too noisy to get close to bucks in most country, so you have to be smart about how you use them, or you'll just lower your chances at killing a big mule deer. I could write a whole other book on using horses for hunting, so just check my blog at rockslide.com and look for the category affectionately titled Got Horses to learn for all the techniques I used in packing horses. Before I move on to other essential gear, let's break for a horse story. This one took place in the back country of Wyoming in 2005. You pursue them, you cherish them, and now it's time to protect them. This is the Mule Deer Foundation. Our mission is the conservation of mule deer, black-tailed deer, and their habitats, the heart and soul of the West. Join the herd today and help us preserve the legacy of these majestic creatures for generations to come. Your membership supports essential conservation projects, research initiatives, and educational programs that secure a future for mule deer and black-tailed deer. Our deer, our heritage, our responsibility. Don't just witness their journey. Be a part of it. Join the herd. Together, we can make a difference. Visit muledeer.org today. Horses, mountains, and mule deer. The blizzard packed 60 mile per hour winds, almost drowning out the whinny of my saddle horse tied in the spruce a 100 yards above. Working at a fevered pitch, I struggled to keep upright on the steep slope without stabbing myself. My pack horse, Missy, tied a few feet behind me, answered her compadre's call. With only one scraggly spruce to tie to at the kill site, I had to separate the horses, which were now my lifeline to get back to civilization. The blood-stained snow was almost white again as the storm pounded the mountain. Trying not to fall, I cut along the spine to the hip joint and twisted the last quarter until it pulled free. Loading it hastily onto my horse, I tied a basket hitch at best, as best as I could with my, thumb, with my numb bare hands. The load was awkward, but the sawbuck was still centered on her withers. It should hold, I thought, as I make my way back to the horse trail a thousand feet above. I slipped my still bloody hands into some wet wool gloves tying the cape head and antlers onto the internal frame pack, I slung it over my shoulders. As much as I trust my horses, I didn't want to roll one on a set of antlers that comes around only every few years. The wind blew the snow horizontally, stinging my face as I trudged back to my saddle horse, Rain. In just the time it had taken me to quarter and load the buck, the storm had put down nearly six inches of snow on the six already there. Rain's whinny guided me into where I tied her in the thick spruce. The storm ripped at the treetops above us like a hurricane. The slope leveled some there, so I sat on the ground next to the horses. I was totally exhausted. I had planned to lead the horses to the top of the mountain to the trail, but there was no way I could buck the snow that far. I had killed the buck at noon after four hours of tracking him in the near vertical terrain, just as the blizzard set in. I then had to retrieve the horses from the top. so I had been bucking snow for almost nonstop since first light. It was now 4.30 p.m. This was incredibly steep country to be riding horses in, but if I switched back enough, I should be able to ride all the way to the top. I decided to try to mount up. Rain let me on, but the steepness of the slope caused her to struggle for her footing before I could get in the stirrups. She dropped her rear end and then came back up, hitting me hard enough to throw me. The deep snow broke my fall, but now the horses were loose. If I lost them, I'd never make it back to camp and would have to stay out in this godforsaken storm all night. I fought to my feet with the buck still on my back and lunged for the lead rope dragging behind rain. I caught it by the last few inches and pulled hard to stop her. As it had gone the first time, I had to try remounting again. This time I cleared the saddle and got my foot in the stirrup before she started to struggle to get her footing. She got her feet under her and I felt secure, so I tugged Missy's rope and spurred rain. She kept her feet this time and started churning through the snow like a buzz through timber. The cape and antlers got in time with their lunges, smoothing out the ride, and I held on tight. We made good progress and hit the top within 30 minutes. I had dropped off the trail three hours before, and since then the high winds had crested the snow, forming a cornice that was four feet high. Rain leaned in and busted through the drift like a snow plow with enough force to throw me onto her neck, dislodging my feet from the stirrups. I would have fallen, but her next, next lunge threw me back into the cantle of the saddle, and I was upright again. I was glad nobody was there to witness my flailing. Finally, we were on flat ground, but the unfettered wind was now blasting the full 60 mile per hour at our backs, causing the mares to break into a trot. Normally I'd slow them, but I let Rain have her head as the sooner we got off the top and into the timber, the better. The buck's antlers flopped wildly on my back, but a dozen or so half hitches still held them onto the pack. Riding into the timber, the massive storm seemed to lose her grip on us and the horses slowed to a walk. I settled in for the long ride, thanking God I was off the top. I rode an hour and a half around the mountain, slowly losing elevation as the black darkness set in. The snow had stopped, but the clouds held low to the ground. My headlamp penetrated the thick fog only a few feet, so I just shut it off and trusted my horses to stay on the faint high country trail. Camp lay a few more miles ahead, and the horses wanted to get back there as much as I did. Because of the storm, I was likely the only deer hunter in the miles of mountains that surrounded me, and I felt the emptiness of it all. It was a welcome sound to hear my second pack horse, Charlie, let out a whinny in the pitch black as we neared camp. He had been tied in camp for over 12 hours and was just as happy to see us. I dumped my pack, pulled the panniers in the saddles, and made my way to my Eureka two-man tent. Because of the storm, the horses would have to wait until morning before I could graze them. Their long faces reminded me of their empty stomachs. I leaned my rifle in the pack against a tent and lit a small gas lantern. The cold, dark camp slowly came to life. I had tied a 6 by 8 tarp next to the tent the day before as an extra shelter, and amazingly the wind had not taken it down. I noticed my poor Weatherby looked like an icicle. With the lantern at full power now, my eyes wandered to the Cape and antlers. His antlers were some of the best I'd seen in 15 years of hunting those mountains. I prayed and thanked God. I really wanted to put a tape on him, but I was too tired and cold. I dug through a panyon, and retrieved some rice and soup. Warming it on my propane stove seemed to take forever as I sat shivering out in the weather. Occasional bursts of snow pellets blasted the tarp draped over my makeshift kitchen. The concoction was finely warm and I drank it straight from the pan, feeling the life-giving heat penetrate my body. I could relax a little now and I reflected back over the last few months. I'd hunted this buck for 16 out of the last 40 days and it had ended as epically as a man could hope. My pickup truck parked at the lonely trailhead 10 miles south was still a four-hour ride down the canyon. I knew the storm would break during the night, and tomorrow I could head back to civilization, fully satisfied with the hunt I will never forget. It was 10 p.m. by the time I crawled into my military mummy bag. I still shivered from my damp, long underwear, but knew in a few minutes that the bag would warm up, and then so would I. As I drifted to sleep, I heard the faint sound of a horse pawing the ground a few feet away. The wind rushed over the ridge above, climbing to a howl before lulling a moment, then starting his climb back up again. I thought back over the years of using horses in the backcountry and all the work it takes. Putting up hay in the hot July sun, the back-breaking job of keeping them shod, and the years of training them it takes to get a horse ready for the mountains. I knew right there and then it was worth it all. You may wonder why the page headers in this chapter and my blog category on horses is titled Got Horses. And I can say my editor made me do it. The phrase is from a blog post of mine a couple years ago on the rockslide.com website. Here's an excerpt. Nearly 20 years ago, while scouting fruitlessly for a mountain goats in a remote Idaho unit, I ran into an old cowboy. Discouraged, I asked him where I might find the goats in that godforsaken country. He moved his jaw into his left cheek, smiled, and asked, Got horses? I did, and soon he was scratching a map in the dirt with a short stick. The next weekend, I made a 10-mile trip by horseback to the remote peak he said held goats. Just a minute after setting up the spotting scope, I could see furry white dots scattered amongst the cliffs. Had it not been for horses, I might have never found that country. Okay, everybody. So that's uh, my chapter on horses. Um, I didn't get real deep into you know all the horse gear, different kinds of saddles, hitches, all that stuff. There's a little bit of that on my blog, but uh, honestly, I'm not a good enough technical rider to really capture all that. But I, I can say about horses that uh, they've been kind of the high point of my all my hunting over the years. I, I just love them. Uh, the companionship, you know, the the, the ability to, to hunt places effectively, you know, all all the good that they bring. They are a lot of work on the side, definitely. Um, and you know it's almost a full-time job year-round to take care of them, uh, but they have been worth it. And um, as I've gotten older, they're even more important. Um, you know, I'm not a young man anymore, and um, I, I definitely need, need the help that they bring. Um, let's see what else I want to cover with that. The the cowboy that I mentioned in there that helped me become a better horse packer because my dad kind of taught me the basics. Um, you know, definitely on caring for horses. You know, trailering, training, all of that. Uh, and he had some knowledge of packing, but it, but it was limited. Um, but Bill Kelly of Boulder, Wyoming. I met him when I was hunting in Wyoming back in the early 90s, and and he just felt sorry for me. He saw me on the mountain. He saw my my poor horse. You know, I didn't I didn't, I didn't the only knot I knew how to tie was on my shoe. Uh, it was evident and he just kind of took me under his wing over the years and we planned some hunts together and I learned a lot from him um, you know proper hitches um, you know, all the things about keeping a horse safe in the backcountry not hurting them when you're packing them you know all of that stuff uh, and, and feeding horses in the backcountry that is tough that is tough um, and you know if you've got your horses back there you can't just let them go graze you know you have to come up with a system uh where they can graze and, and not run off because they will they'll head to the truck they will they will leave you behind i've, I've had that happen and uh, so bill kind of taught me all that stuff with what we call a, a picket stake which is you can train a horse um to to have a rope around its back foot not harm it don't go do it without studying the process. Again, this is, I'm just previewing it here because you will hurt a horse if you don't know what you're doing. But he taught me all that stuff and, and uh, really made it so I was effective in the backcountry. So I uh, talked to him a couple of weeks ago. We've stayed in touch all these years. He lives in Boulder, Wyoming. Good friend of mine, Bill Kelly. Uh, any of you Wyoming guys, you might know him. Uh, tell him I said hi and tell him we mentioned him on the Rockcast. So, um, can't say enough about horses. Uh, if you follow if you follow me the last couple of years, see I'm using them more than ever. Um, but there, there's one horse in there that I mentioned, Rain. Um, I just lost her last month, about a month ago. And that was tough. Um, she was going on 30 years old. She was not keeping her weight on anymore. She had a really tough winter last year. Um, You know, horses are just like people. Their teeth wear out, you know, they get old. And um, I just made the decision after last winter, I couldn't feed her enough to keep the weight on her. And um, I just decided that was going to be her last winter. But I I let her have one more summer, uh, one good, beautiful, green summer. And um, I actually retired her back in 2012. She went blind in one eye. So I think I rode her for about 18 years. I I, I, started, I She was born in '94, and um, so I retired her as a pasture pet and just you know kept 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 her feet trimmed, wormed her, you know. But she she had earned her keep. So she basically from 2012 to 2023 she was a pasture pet, and 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 thank God I had I had the money and the resources to be able to keep her. There was a time in my life when it got a horse got to where I couldn't use it, I had to put it down. I just couldn't afford to keep it. And so I was happy to be able to give that to Rain. Um, and, you know, when you when you have to put down a horse that you have had for 30 years, it's it's more than just losing a horse. I was a young man when I got her, and I'm not a young man anymore. So you're kind of saying goodbye to a a part of your life um an era of your life that you're never going to get back again and um so it it was tough it was tough and my dad um he's in poor health he broke her in 94 and 95 and it so it was the last of our horses that he broke he broke a lot of our horses but that was the last one living horse that we broke so it was it was hard for him too he he came with me when when we put her down it was really hard for him because that was his last one so there's 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 a deep connection with a horse and um you know hopefully you can hear that in my voice right now that that it's it's part of your life it's a big part of your life and um and it's 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 just like when you lose a good dog you're you're really glad to have had him but man it hurts to let him go it's it's really no different than a horse so anyways don't want to get a, a, too cringy here on the on the episode, but I just want to uh, encourage people that if, if you've got the ability uh, to, to do horses, they bring a, a level um, satisfaction to your hunting. You really can't get any other way, and um, I highly recommend them. Um, as I mentioned in there, you know, they're not totally necessary. I know some great buck hunters don't even own them at all, but, uh, but you know, if you're able and, and, and you can find a mentor to kind of teach you how they are... A real asset so uh, let, me, let me let me close the episode with this um, th- the how-to of horses is, is pretty intimidating and I, and I really didn't include a lot of that in my book uh, but I saw a new book come out a couple months ago by George Betis. Um he is uh, a longtime hunter um, he's a professor at one of the big universities, but really led a hunting lifestyle. Great guy, great to have him in the in the hunting world. He released a book uh, through Western Hunter. I don't have it in front of me, so I can't even I can't even tell you what the title is. But it's George Betas, B E T T A S, and it's a great book. I ordered a copy of it. I have not. Done any more than a, just a cursory read of it. Went through the chapters, looked at the table of contents and everything. Solid, solid information uh, there. Uh, a lot of information there. So for any of you that are already horse owners, you want to deepen your knowledge, you could be like me and get a copy of it. Or if you um, or maybe want to get into horses, I, I think you still need a mentor, uh, somebody that you can you know get with. In person, but boy, this book really goes in depth with it. So you know, without having read it, the whole thing, I, I still think I could recommend it because it's just hard to find resources out there that break all this down. And and George was a backcountry hunter. That's how he used his horses. So I noticed as I went through the chapters that there's a lot of good information in there from the equipment, the camps you know caring for horses you know all the other stuff so anyways check it out um just go over to western hunter uh, western hunter magazine our friends uh they've got it somewhere there that's why i ordered mine took a couple weeks to get it but it's, it's a nice book so we'll end the podcast there and um good luck to everybody that's still got any tags left and uh one of us co-hosts from the rockcast we'll see you in the next week or two